This is a Courageous Church podcast, equipping and empowering you to live a courageous life. Join us now as we listen to a message from Courageous Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. I want you to realize that today in Christian churches throughout the earth, people are celebrating the Feast of Pentecost. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the birth of the Christian church, and notably a major feast of the Lord. So in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, let's read and familiarize ourselves briefly, and I'm going to be sharing from the message paraphrase. You can go ahead and put that up on the screen if you would, please. Acts 2, 1 through 4, when the feast of Pentecost came, or that is when it arrived, or some versions say when it had fully come. In fact, some translators say when it was fulfilled, they were all together in one place. Without warning, there came a sound like a strong wind, gale force. No one could tell where it came from, and it filled the whole building. Then, like a wildfire, the Holy Spirit spread through their ranks, and they started speaking in a number of different languages as the Spirit prompted them. I would like to remind us that this is not the celebration of the birth of the Pentecostal Christian Church. This is the celebration of the Feast of Pentecost, And there's a major difference. We are focusing in on one of the feasts of the Lord, which was celebrated for hundreds and hundreds and centuries before the Pentecostal movement began in the early 1900s. Of course, I'm sure you're very familiar with the Jewish feasts. This one, Pentecost, and the other six festivals of the Lord. Or are you? And if not, why not? Shouldn't I assume that we're all familiar with the three major feasts? That all Jews were expected to return to Jerusalem for every year throughout their generations. And not just the Jews, but all strangers and foreigners who associated with Israel. These were feasts that Jesus promoted and attended, as did his disciples, as did Paul the Apostle. In fact, these feasts were kept by the New Testament church. There is evidence in the first century, second century, and third century that all seven feasts were acknowledged and practiced, celebrated by the church community. I know we're talking about stepping out into the deep, right? Do you realize that sometimes going deeper means getting back to basics? I shared last time I was here that Jesus had to reprimand the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, and in verse 5 he says, you need to repent and do the first works. Why? Because they'd left their first love. So repent and do the things you did at the beginning Again, now I want to put up a comparative chart that we can look at and kind of give you uh, an overview, a quick highlight. Let's look here 
at Passover. This is the first major feast. And then Pentecost, the second. And then booths or tents or tabernacles, as you may have heard it referred to. Notice that Passover is in the spring. Booths is in the fall. Pentecost is in the middle and as I'll show you, we refer to it as the time of the Gentiles, which is quite fascinating when you can embrace it. There's an additional feast that is associated with Passover called Unleavened Bread. So Passover was held on the 14th of Nisan. That's the first month of the Hebrew year after they came out of Egypt. Nisan 14 was Passover. The next day was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So Passover was celebrated. It was focused on the next day Unleavened Bread began. And then according to the Old Testament, the next Sabbath that would come after Passover. So if Passover was on a Tuesday, the next Sabbath would be this Saturday. The, the Sunday or the day following the next Sabbath would be the next feast. So if, if, if Passover was on a Thursday, the next Sabbath would be on Saturday. So the Feast of First Fruits would always be the day after the Sabbath or Sunday. The Feast of First Fruits. These three feasts were the spring feasts. We'll get to Pentecost in a moment. We have spring and then we also have fall. The fall, we know it culminates in booths, but it begins with the Feast of Trumpets. Then, the Day of Atonement. Trumpets, 10 days later, Day of Atonement, and then booths, lasting for a week. We'll get into more detail. But it's interesting that the spring, the Passover, Unleavened Bread, and first fruits, are the beginning of the year, the springtime, and they relate to the first coming of Jesus Christ. The fall is the end toward the end of the year, and it relates to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And as we'll see, these spring feasts have already been fulfilled. The fall, the end, has yet to come. And what we find in the, is strangely placed in the middle is this Feast of Pentecost, which is at the end of spring, 50 days after unleavened bread and first fruits, and it really depicts the church age, the period between the first coming and the second coming of the Lord. And this is where we live now. Now let me put up a second slide that just changes this slightly so you can get a little bit of perspective because we really want to see them in order. If you look at them in order through the year, the first feast is Passover. The second is unleavened bread. The third is first fruits. The fourth is Pentecost today. The next is trumpets, then the Day of Atonement, and we finalize these feasts of the Lord with booths. Spring, time of the Gentiles, and fall. Beginning, church age, and end. So some of you may be pushing back. It's typical for us to do so. What does the law have to do with me? I'm free from the law. I live under grace. I've been taught these feasts don't really apply to me. They have no pertinence or place in my life 
or at least so many of us have been told. And this is why we do not practice these feasts typically in our churches today throughout America, throughout the West, and much of the East. We just don't practice them. So that's my question for us today. My question, are we following a biblical calendar or are we following a religious or a civil calendar established by men? See, the calendar that's biblical was established by who? It was, it was established by God. And there's been plenty of interpretation and adaption of that calendar to the extent that, as Mark 7:13 puts it, I won't put it up, but is it possible that by our traditions, we're making God's word null and void? I didn't say, is it possible that the Pharisees did and the scribes? I'm saying, is it possible that we are making God's word of no effect? Let's think of some of our traditions. Now, stay with me. Let's think of Easter. Let's think of Christmas. Where are they biblically? I know you can make an argument, I can make an argument for why we would celebrate Christmas. But where's the chapter and verse that gives us direction to celebrate a holiday called Christmas? Where is the chapter and verse that directs us to celebrate Easter? Where is the New Testament practice? Can you show it to me in the book of Acts? The writings of Paul or John or Peter or Philemon or Jude? I looked online. Consider with me these Christian holidays. Epiphany. It's in January. It's the celebration of the three kings or remembering the three wise men. Orthodox Christmas, it's in January. It's the birth of Christ. Ash Wednesday, it's in March. It's the first day of Lent, and that's preparation for Easter, most of which terms you're not going to find in your Bibles. Palm Sunday, April, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. Monday, Thursday, it's in April. It's Christ's Last Supper. Good Friday in April, Jesus' crucifixion. And we won't get into it tonight, but there's a lot of biblical evidence pointing toward Jesus dying Wednesday or Thursday, not Friday. We won't get into that, but that's something that we can discuss maybe sometime in the future. I'm not talking about a theological perspective. I'm talking about biblical evidence that is so clear and compelling that it'll make you think. Does that mean that it's wrong to celebrate the crucifixion of Jesus Christ on Friday? Not necessarily. I'm not saying that at all. But we may be just doing some things that really aren't biblical. And last I heard, we want to be biblical Christians. People often ask me what kind of Christian I am. What's my denomination? People tell me, oh, you're Pentecostal because in the past I was ordained by the Assemblies of God. But when I pastored an Assembly of God church, it was the farthest thing from looking like an Assembly of God church. It looked like a non-denominational church full of young people that loved God. We didn't practice the programs of the denomination. We didn't have the lingo of the denomination. We didn't teach the doctrinal standpoints of the denomination. We were biblical Christians, spirit-filled, trying to 
do our part in fulfilling the Great Commission. And so we look at these things and we're astounded sometimes. Ascension Day, May, Jesus ascended into heaven. It's a holiday celebrated by Christians. Pentecost, June, we're celebrating it today. The Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus' followers. All Saints Day in November, the spiritual connection of all saints. These are all great things. I, I love the concepts. But are they biblical? Christmas Day, December 25th, the birth of Christ in the Western Church. Is it possible that we've been straining out gnats and swallowing camels? Yes. Yes. As it relates to the things that we practice in the church today. Now in Acts chapter 12, verse 4, and we'll put this up for you, in the King James Version of the Bible, and I, I would venture to guess not too many of you carry the King James Bible or read from it, but some do, and many do across Christendom and, 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 and prefer it as a version of the Bible. There is only one reference to Easter in the King James Version of the Bible. Now, I want to remind you that the King James Version was translated and published in what year? 1611. It wasn't published in the first century. So don't assume that you read a passage in a Bible that was translated from Greek in 1611 and you find the word Easter. Don't assume that that meant Easter was celebrated in the New Testament church. This is the only reference to Easter in the King James Version of the Bible. Here it is, verse 4. And when Herod had apprehended Peter, he put him in prison, and he delivered him to four quaternions, or four fours, 16 soldiers, to keep him, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. Now, does it say anything about a celebration of a holiday? Does it say anything about the resurrection of Jesus? The context is the timing of when Herod is going to bring Peter out before the people. Now, the English Standard Version, which is also translated from the Greek text, this is how it reads. We'll put it up also. Verse 4. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after Passover to bring him out to the people. What a big discrepancy. Why introduce this word Easter if it's the only place that it's in the Bible, never mentioned again, and no practice associated with it? And so, let's look at it. The Greek word, Pascha, is correctly translated Passover 28 times in the New Testament in the King James Version of the Bible. That word, Pascha, is 29 times in the New Testament. One of the times, this time in Acts 12, it's translated Easter. For this reason, many critics say that the King James Version isolated instance of translating it as Easter is incorrect. They made a mistake. ESV thinks they did. The NIV says Herod intended to bring him out for trial after the Passover. The New Living Translation says, 
the same. New King James Version, the same. New Century Version, American Standard Version, 1890 Darby Bible, God's Word Translation, Holman Christian Standard Bible, the New Revised Standard Version, the Lexham English Bible, the New American Standard Bible, all translate this Passover. It's the only place Easter appears in the New Testament. The fact is, the early church did not celebrate Easter. They celebrated the Feast of Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits. So my question to us is, as biblical Christians, which calendar are we following? I'll put up some of the calendars here. You might be following the Julian calendar, the Gregorian calendar, or the biblical calendar, the Julian, Julius Caesar's calendar from Rome, established in 45 BC. That's when that calendar was developed. Or the Gregorian. You know who Gregorian's calendar is from? Roman Pope Gregory. A Roman Catholic Pope in 1582 forwarded his calendar, and to this day it is internationally accepted as the Western calendar or the Christian calendar. We follow it. The biblical calendar was given by God. Big difference. In the Old Testament, in the Torah, the five books of Moses, and it's confirmed by the New Testament. So if we follow the biblical calendar, then Passover, Pentecost, booths are critical to us, even though probably most of our Christian life, we've never celebrated them. We know about them, but we've never really celebrated them. We hear about Jews celebrating them or Christians having a Jesus and the Passover. We just think, oh, you know, they're just doing a little Seder meal. That's okay. Or, you know, we don't mind, but that's really, you know, that, that, that's old news. We, we're, we got new good news, and we're not under the law. Not only these three majors, but also the four related feasts as well, totaling seven. You know what's fascinating to me? Jesus came to fulfill all the feasts. He came to fulfill them. Let's put that first category chart back up. The first one. Let's go back to that. No, let's go back to Passover, Pentecost, and booths. There we go. Jesus came to fulfill these. He fulfilled Passover. He fulfilled unleavened bread. I'm going to show you how. He fulfilled first fruits. Do you know what the Christian Easter is? It's the first fruits. Jesus. Sunday. After the Sabbath that followed Passover, not only did Jesus come to fulfill, he already fulfilled these, he's coming a second time to fulfill the rest. Why are these important to me? Because it's all about Jesus. It's like God's up in heaven, as though he was filming a motion picture. It's though he's the great playwright. It's as though God wanted to show us through time. He wanted to reveal to us. He wanted to paint a picture. He wanted to tell a story. 
Most of us look back at Passover and we say, well, that's back then. That's back then. When God gave Passover, he used an event to say, look ahead. Don't look back. Look forward. And when you look forward, you find Jesus in the Passover because Jesus died on the Passover. He was crucified. When you look at booths, we, we look back at Israel traveling in the wilderness and using makeshift tents. God doesn't want us to look back. He wants us to look forward, realizing that there's going to be a trumpet blast and there's going to be a day of atonement where Israel is saved and there's going to be a celebration, a festival of booths or tents where Jesus makes his abode with us like God did in the wilderness. We're looking forward to the fulfillment of the feasts. And God wants us to keep doing that. It's amazing. So a couple clarifications. First of all, these are God's festivals. These are feasts of the Lord. Leviticus 23 and Exodus 12 bear this out. These are not feasts of the Jews. Sometimes they're referred to as that, but these are the feasts of the Lord. Big difference. And did you realize that nearly two months before the old covenant was ratified and before Moses climbed Mount Sinai to receive the two tablets with the Ten Commandments. Two months before that, Moses was instructed about Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They were given before and outside of the law. They're not part of the law. That's like saying, well, I'm not going to keep a Sabbath or honor a principle of a Sabbath because that's under the law. You know when the Sabbath was established? Genesis chapter 1, when God rested. Far outside of the law. So let's, let's look at these verses. Exodus 12, 14, if you put that up. God says, and this day shall be unto you for a memorial, and you shall keep it a feast to Yahweh throughout your generations. And you shall keep it a feast by ordinance forever. It is a feast to Yahweh. You know what Yahweh is, don't you? That's the name that God gave to Moses in the burning bush. I am that I am. This is a feast to him. Later in Leviticus 23, 2, God commands Moses, speak unto the children of Israel and say to them, concerning the feasts of Yahweh, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocation, even these are my feasts. That's what God says. These belong to me. They're not yours, and they're not the Jews. But that's how we look at them, isn't it? See, God leaves no doubt that these observances belong to him, not to Jews or any particular group of people. It didn't matter whether you were an Israelite or a stranger. You were required to observe these days that Yahweh set apart to himself. Now, look at the Christian Standard Bible and how they put it. Leviticus 23, 1 and 2. The Lord told Moses, speak to the Israelites and tell them, these are my appointed times. The times of the Lord that you will proclaim as sacred assemblies. The word appointed times comes from Hebrew, the word modim. Modim. It literally means appointed times, but Hebrew words are ripe with meaning. It also means to repeat or to rehearse. Now think about it. God says, I'm going to give you appointed times. I'm going to give you festivals, feasts.
feasts. I want you to repeat them. I want you to rehearse them. It's as though we're in a rehearsal. The Jews have been in a rehearsal. They were in a rehearsal since they experienced the events and God established feasts regarding them so that he could send his son to fulfill them so that they could see his son and be saved. And now we have the opportunity to continue to rehearse the feasts, thank God for our Savior, and look forward to his second coming. And how much more in tune will I be when I celebrate every year the Feast of Trumpets? The Lord descending from heaven with a shout. The voice of an archangel. And the trumpet of God. That's what it's depicting. That's what it's looking forward to. It's Jesus coming back and the dead in Christ rising first and all we that are alive and remain gathered together with them in 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 the clouds. And forever we will be together with the Lord. It's amazing. God's word is so replete with promises and fulfillments. It's, it's amazing. Thank God for it. Jesus didn't come away to do away with the law and the prophets. Remember that. He says, I didn't come to do away with the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them or fulfill it. Matthew 5.17. But here's what happened is the gospel spread throughout non-Jewish nations among people who didn't have a history of celebrating the Passover. The pagan rites of Easter gradually became assimilated into what the Christian church called Resurrection Day. Now in Las Vegas, where we live, greeted so many times, we went to two services on Resurrection Sunday, and I don't know how many people told me Happy Easter, and I wasn't happy about it. And I said, and happy resurrection day to you. Let's get our focus off the bunny rabbit and onto Jesus Christ. Because our whole society has thrown out Easter and they've thrown out Jesus Christ. And Christmas time, you know, it's all about Santa Claus and what can I get and what don't I have to give. And they've lost the purpose. And it's partly because we've compromised with our sacred holidays. And we redefined them instead of letting God just tell us and we be doers of the word. It's not that hard. It's not that hard. So we're going to rehearse these until their fulfillment. It's amazing. Did you realize that the Puritans, part founders of the American continent, did not celebrate Easter because they were convinced it was a pagan holiday? And in America, we did not widely observe the holiday of Easter until after the Civil War. You know why we didn't realize that? Because we weren't there. And we basically just take for granted what people tell us and we just, we just assimilate. Why do you think God gave us his word? We need his word. I appreciate that you're listening today, but I hope you'll go home and search the scriptures when I'm done to see whether the things that I'm telling you are so. That's what the Bereans did. They were noble. We don't just listen to what everybody says, even if it sounds biblical or it sounds right. Check it out. I like what Paul told Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. We'll put it up for you. He says, all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. All Scripture... 
And we read that and we think, gosh, I'm glad I have a Bible. I'm glad the book of Matthew is inspired, and I'm glad Revelation is inspired, and I'm glad Peter is inspired, and it's not what Paul said. Paul said, all Old Testament Scripture is God-breathed because there was not a word of New Testament Scripture written yet and circulated. He was just commenting, and then we embrace some of his writing, some of his letters. The Gospels weren't written yet. Paul was writing in the 50s. The Gospels are written a little bit later than that, later in the first century. He says, all Scripture is given by God and is profitable for your doctrine, your reproof, your correction, for your instructions in righteousness, so that the servants of God may be complete or perfect, thoroughly equipped unto every good work. What is this telling me? It's telling me that I love the New Testament. The New Testament is critical, but it's telling me I could live by the Old Testament and I could make it. That's what Jesus lived on and the disciples, that's what they lived on. Now, I'm not saying we should do that, separate it, but the Old Testament needs to be embraced today. If the New Testament doesn't amend or negate something in the Old Covenant, we better walk carefully before we throw it out. So what should be the approach to be a biblical Christians? Let me tell you what the approach is today in Israel. Right now, there are 150 Christian fellowships meeting throughout Israel, and they all keep the Passover. That's amazing to me. They keep the Passover. I don't know any churches. I don't know any. I know there are some, but I don't know of any churches that are keeping the Passover, celebrating the Passover. Christian churches, I don't know. We should be doing that. We should be doing that. Yes, it'll have the twist of he is risen. It'll have the twist that it's Jesus who's the Passover lamb. I get that. We don't have to celebrate the Seder meal and take, pick up all the traditions of the Jews through the centuries. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about going back to the Old Testament and practicing what God gave us. That's what I'm saying. You see, all the festivals point to Christ. Second, or I'm sorry, Colossians 2, 16 and 17 tells us that they're but a shadow, but Jesus is the substance. We'll put this one up. Second, uh, I'm sorry, Colossians 2, 16 and 17 in the New Living Translation. So, so don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink or for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. For these rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come. And Christ is the reality. Now, instead of just saying, well, that means we can throw everything out. No, what it really says is Christ is the reality and these things exist as shadows of the reality. So they remind us of the reality and they point us to the reality. So that's healthy. Am I going to judge people over them? No, of course not. But am I going to encourage where I pastor and where I teach that we implement a biblical calendar and follow God in this way? Absolutely. Absolutely. Genesis to Malachi is God's revelation, revealing the Messiah. 1 Corinthians 10, 11, I won't put it up. Let me give it to you quickly. These things happened to them, to the Jews, to Israel, as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the age has come. Paul says what happened to the nation of Israel was for our sake, to help us. So let's take advantage of that because God's redemptive plan is revealed throughout the Scripture and particularly through the prophecies and the feasts, which were, as I said, rehearsals. And remember Luke chapter 24? Remember the road to Emmaus? The two disciples 
Cleopas and another guy, and they're really sad, and Jesus is raised from the dead, and he doesn't let them know who he is, but he appears, walks with them. And he goes, why are you guys so sad? And they said, don't you know what's been going on in Jerusalem these, these last few days? And Jesus teaches them, and he says, didn't you know that it was necessary for Christ to suffer these things? And then, beginning with Moses, the Torah, first five books, and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. That is amazing to me. I would have liked to have heard that lecture. Moses and all the prophets. So without the Old Testament prophetic writings, we have no messianic predictions, no opportunity for fulfillment, no evidence of biblical, and, uh, of biblical and, and a scriptural nature. We just don't have it. God gave it to us. He wants us to have it. So the feasts were assigned to the Jews and then, then to the strangers and the foreigners. That's who we are. Paul refers to us as strangers and foreigners in some of his writings. If we associate with Israel, I, asso I associate with Israel. Jesus was a Jew. I'm, I'm grafted in. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm part of the family of faith. I'm associated to Abraham. Abraham. People like that because Abraham's before the law. I'm a part. And so let's just listen for a second. This is not too lengthy, but I didn't put it up. Sometimes it's good for us just to listen. You know, this is from Romans 11. And when Paul sent this letter to the church at Rome, there was probably a copy of it, right? They didn't have Xerox machines. There was no FedEx Kinkos. Everybody didn't have a copy in hand. They didn't have overhead projectors, and there were no screens. Somebody read this, and everybody listened. So I know you'll get it. This is Paul. But some of these branches from Abraham's tree, some of the people of Israel have been broken off. And you Gentiles, that's us, who were branches from a wild olive tree have been grafted in. So now you also receive the blessing God has promised Abraham and his children, sharing in the rich nourishment from the root of God's special olive tree. So it says Israel's a special olive tree, and we're a wild olive tree. That's awesome. But you must not brag about being grafted in to replace branches that were broken off. You're just a branch, not the root. I like that. Because a lot of Christians, oh, those Jews, look what they did. That's been going on for centuries. Look what the Jews did. Let's not celebrate their feasts anymore. Let's separate from them. No, you're just a branch. Well, you may say, those branches were broken off to make room for me. Yes, but remember, those branches were broken off because they didn't believe in Christ. And you are there because you do believe. So don't think highly of yourself. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> but fear what could happen. For if God did not spare the original branches, he won't spare you either. Notice how God is both kind and severe. He is severe toward those who disobeyed, 
but kind to you if you continue in his kindness. But if you stop trusting, you also will be cut off. And if the people of Israel turn from their unbelief, they will be grafted in again. For God has the power to graft them back into that tree. You by nature were a branch cut from a wild olive tree. So if God was willing to do something contrary to nature by grafting you into his cultivated tree, he will be far more eager to graft the original branches back into the tree where they belong. I want you to understand this mystery, Paul says, dear brothers and sisters, so that you won't feel proud about yourselves. Some of the people of Israel have hard hearts, but this will last only until the full number of Gentiles comes to Christ. Did you hear that? They're going to be proud and they're going to be rebellious only until the full number of Gentiles comes to Christ. When does that happen? In the time of the Gentiles, in the church age. And I'll show you in a minute that that began on the day of Pentecost. And it ends at the trumpet. We're living in the period. We are living. And those who are younger here today have such an opportunity and those who are older. We are living in the period of grace where God is not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. And the reason Jesus hasn't come yet is for the salvation of souls. And we have the opportunity to be a part of that. As the scriptures say, the one who rescues will come from Jerusalem and he will turn Israel away from ungodliness. And this is my covenant with them that I will take away their sins. Who's going to do it? Jesus is. Many of the people of Israel are now enemies of the good news. And this benefits you Gentiles. Yet they are still the people he loves because he chose their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For God's gift and his call can never be withdrawn. Once you Gentiles were rebels against God, but when the people of Israel rebelled against him, God was merciful to you instead. Now they are rebels, and God's mercy has come to you so that they too can share in God's mercy. What is that telling us? It tells us we're part of the family. Amen. We're part of the family. We've been grafted into the tree. Jesus. It's amazing. So my point tonight is we cannot be robbed of our privilege. We are part of Israel. We have not replaced Israel like so many taught in the 4th, 5th, and 6th centuries. That is not based on Scripture. That is, that is instead from anti-Semitic leaders beginning with Constantine, the Roman emperor, in 325 A.D., he, he gathered the Council of Nicaea, and many of these things started to percolate. He, he wrote scathing letters, you can read them today, about the Jews. Not just Constantine, but many of the leading church fathers you hear them quoted in our pulpit still today. They hated the Jews, Christ killers, and many of the papacy, popes, were really established in the 6th century, not the 1st century, not the 3rd century. The popes really took power 
the 6th century. The first three centuries of the church, there was general respect between Christian and Jew, Jew and Christian. There was general respect historically. In the 4th, 5th, and 6th centuries, there was a deterioration of that respect, and it was due to leadership leading the church astray. We cannot throw out the Old Testament. It's the Word of God. Ephesians 2, 12, and 13, I'll put it up. It says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and you were strangers to the covenant of promise. See, we were outside, having no hope, and you were without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. And he says, so now you were no longer strangers and foreigners. You are fellow citizens with the saints. He's talking about Israel, the Jews. And you're members of the household of God. And we are to keep the appointed times. Us too. We have not replaced Israel. We have joined them. So we must eat the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Look at 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6. And we can let the kids know they can come back and Candace. Thank you for doing that. 1 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8. And while we do that, why don't you take your little baggie out? Paul says, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little bit of leaven, a little bit of yeast, leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. He says, therefore, let us keep the festival. What is he saying? Let us keep the feast. What is he saying? Let us keep the appointed time, the modim. Let us keep Passover. Let us keep unleavened bread. Not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. This is unleavened bread. It is bread minus the yeast. This is bread minus the element that allows the bread to rise. This, coupled with yeast, becomes this. This is leavened bread. This is unleavened. God gave us the illustration. God told Israel, get all the yeast out of your homes. And for seven days, this is the bread you eat. Why? Because this leaven is a picture of pride. It's what puffs up. And leaven, a little, a little bit of yeast put in the dough will cause the bread to rise. That's why you're familiar with sourdough bread. You make the dough and then you take a little clump of it and you put it in the, wrap it in plastic and you put it in the fridge. And next time you're ready to make some bread, you've got that leavened dough and you add that in and, and, the, and the bread will rise. It's a picture of sin. And God says, I want all the sin out of your house. I want all the sin out of your life. And so I encourage you to take the unleavened bread today. We're not taking communion today. 
take the unleavened bread and realize there's a lesson for us in this. And by the way, speaking of communion, you know, that's the only institution in the New Testament that was added. It's the only one. I can't find another. It's the feast of the Jews. And then Paul says, do this. Do this, and he gives us in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 a whole recipe for how we should practice communion based on Jesus' last supper and Jesus saying, take my body, symbol. Take my blood, symbol. The bread, it was unleavened bread. He was celebrating the Passover. And Jesus says, take the, the wine. That was a picture of his blood. And he says, as often as you drink the, the, the blood and you eat the bread, you'll show my death till I come. And he says, do it often. And Paul says, do it often. But today we're just doing it saying, wow, I don't want to have sin in my life. I want to be unleavened. That's a good thing. That's a great lesson. We should be sharing that with our kids every, every year. Passover, we should remind them of the Passover lamb. Unleavened bread the next day, we should break it out in our homes and tell them the lesson. It's so vital. We're not teaching our kids this and we're not teaching each other. It's so important. Did you know that Paul quoted the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, 45 times? He quoted the prophets 53 times. He quoted the Psalms 23 times and other Old Testament books 10 times. In total, 131 times. You can put the slide up. 131 quotes from the Old Testament Scripture by Paul. His letters are built on the Old Testament. It's amazing. Look at that. And that's why Paul tells us in Galatians 3.24, and you know this, the law was our tutor. It was our school teacher to bring us to Christ. Remember that? The law brings us to Christ. It's amazing. So remember, all the festivals point to Christ. They're but a shadow. He's the substance. So I'm going to go through them real quickly, and we wanted the kids to be back for this. We'll go through this real quickly. The spring feasts, we already saw the charts. The spring feasts, they were recorded in Leviticus, Leviticus 23, 4 through 6, and 10, 11, and 11. And I'll put those up. Leviticus 23, 4 through 6 says, These are the Lord's appointed festivals or appointed times, as we learn, the modim. The sacred assemblies that you are to proclaim at their appointed times. The Lord's Passover begins at twilight on the 14th day of the first month. The first month, Nisan. On the 15th day of the month, there it is, the next day, is the Lord's Festival of Unleavened Bread. So Passover is so important, we're going to dedicate that day to it. We're going to kill the lamb. We're going to place the blood on the doorpost and on the lintel. And in Egypt, the death angel passed over all those homes that believed God. And then they ate a meal. They took the lamb shank. That's the leg below the knee. And they roasted it with fire. And they took bitter herbs to remind them of their suffering in Egypt. And they took the unleavened bread and that was their meal. And he said, for your generations, do this and teach your children and remember it for yourselves. Why? Because what happened in Egypt was great. But the earth has no idea how great it's going to be when the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world hangs on Calvary's cross. 
and gives his life so that we may have eternal life, not just be spared from Pharaoh. It's, it's a to- totally different picture. And what God is showing us is there's fulfillment of these feasts all in Jesus, every one of them. Isn't that amazing? That's amazing. He says, for seven days you must eat bread without yeast. And then go on in verse 10 and 11. He says, when you enter the land I'm going to give you and you reap its harvest. Bring to the priest a sheaf of the first grain you harvest. He's to wave the sheaf before the Lord so it will be accepted on your behalf. The priest is to wave it on the day after the Sabbath. Now, we cross-reference it, and we're told Passover, the Sabbath following Passover, the next day. It's always a Sunday because Sabbath always falls on a Saturday. The Jewish Sabbath is Saturday. Passover... We know it, the 14th of Nisan. The Sabbath that follows, the next day is Sunday. And that is this celebration of first fruits. And it says the priest is to wave this offering. It's amazing. Okay? So let's look at them really quickly. Passover. It's one of the three annual pil- pilgrimage f- festivals. The Hebrew word is Pesach. Pesach. And it's a festival commemorating Israel's salvation and deliverance from Egypt, as we know. It was a feast, it was a meal, and it was a lamb. It was a feast, the feast of Passover. It was a meal, the Passover meal. Jesus says, I've waited to celebrate this Passover meal with you. And it was a lamb, the Passover lamb. And do you realize Jesus fulfilled it? He kept the feast. He hosted the meal. And he was the Lamb of God without spot or blemish. On the 10th day of Nisan, you read it in Exodus, you read it in Leviticus. On the 10th day, four days before Passover, they were to choose a lamb. Every family was to do it. All the lambs were raised in Bethlehem. And they were to choose a lamb and it had to be without spot or blemish. No markings, no flaws, to the eye perfect. They were to pick a lamb and they were to take it to their home and they were to nurture it for four days. They were to care for it and examine it and make sure it was pure. On the 14th day, they were to kill it and place the blood. Right? Remember that? On the 10th day of Nisan in the first century, Jesus Christ rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. He presented himself as the Lamb of God. And for four days, he continued to teach, and then he was tried in mock trials, and on the 14th of Nisan, he was crucified. He fulfilled it to the date, to the letter. It's astonishing You say, it just sounds like somebody set it up. Right. God set it up. And we have been so thick-skinned and knuckle-headed not to see it and not to embrace it and not to want to continue to celebrate it. Next is unleavened bread. Quickly. It began the day after Passover. It's a seven-day feast celebrated as an extension of the Passover. And as I said, the Israelites ate only the unleavened bread, not the leaven. They didn't eat the the puffed up bread. They were being reminded, get the sin out of your life. And they were commemorating their hurried departure from Egypt. 
and the removal of leaven or sin or pride, which puffs up. Doesn't pride puff you up? Like it puffs up bread. And so God says, get the leaven out. And that's what Paul said. Get the, get the leaven of malice and envy out of your life. Instead, have, have the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. That's what he's calling us to. Well, Jesus fulfilled it because Jesus is the spotless Lamb of God. He's the bread of life. He was tested in all points as we are, yet without sin. Pontius Pilatus said, I find no fault in him. You say, well, he had, a, he had faults. He, he, he was a man. He had faults. No, Pilate said, I find no reason. I find nothing. There's no reason. No fault. That's unleavened bread. Then there's first fruits. It began the day after the Sabbath following Passover, Sunday. And the priest would present sheaves. He would, he would take some of the harvest and he would get sheaves and he would wave them before the Lord. It was sheaves of the grain from the spring harvest. And listen, the Jews could not partake of their crops until the first fruits had been given. The first fruits have to be offered by the priest before the people can enjoy their prosperity. And before you and I can enjoy prosperity and all the promises God has for us, we must receive the first fruits of the harvest, which is Jesus Christ. Because on Sunday, after the Passover, Jesus was risen from the dead. Even before the sun rose, it wasn't Sunday morning while the sun was out, before the sun rose, they went to the tomb while it was still dark. And when they got there, the stone had been rolled away and he was gone. He was not there. He is risen indeed. And so Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. In 1 Corinthians 15, 23, you can put it up too. He says there's an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest. Then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. And he's coming back. So Jesus completely fulfilled the spring feast. Already done. It is finished, he said. But it's exciting that the fall feasts are still ahead associated with the second coming of Christ. And that's the seventh month. And it's, that's called the month of Tishri. So we have the month of Nisan, which we thought was the first month of the Jews. A lot of people think, well, that's the new year for the Jews. No, that was just the first year they're out of Egypt. The seventh month, which is September, October, during our calendar, that's Tishri. And God says, this is going to be the first month of your year. And during that feast, we begin to look at and we associate with the second coming of Christ. He will fulfill them all. The instructions are given. We won't read these. We don't have time in Leviticus 23 and Numbers 29. But the first was trumpets. It was the fall feast marking the new year, both agriculture, agricultural and civil for the Jews, and we know it as Rosh Hashanah. It was 10 days of solemn dedication and repentance. Why were they dedicating themselves and why were they repenting? Because they're getting ready for the next feast, which is called the Day of Atonement. The appointed time of trumpets was announced with a blast of trumpets by the priests, the blowing of the shofar. And Jesus will fulfill this. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 in the NIV says, we can put this one up too, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and the voice of the archangel and with a trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. 
That's trumpets. And that's what we're looking for next. You say, what could have happened? We'll get to that in just a second. Day of Atonement. It's 10 days later. Trumpets is the first day of Tishri. 10 days later is Yom Kippur. It's the highest and holiest day of the Lord's appointed times. Passover is critical, but Yom Kippur, especially as it relates to people who reject God or who rebel against God like Israel, it's a very important day. It's a solemn fasting day. There's deep repentance and sacrifice because on this day, once a year, the high priest, only this day, he enters the Holy of Holies with blood to make an atoning sacrifice for the sins of all the people of Israel. How will Jesus fulfill that feast? Well, Zechariah 12.10 says that at the second coming, Jesus will engage all of Israel and they will all repent for having rejected him. You know, there are a lot of people that are not happy about that. They don't want the Jews to repent. God does. God loves people. People need the Lord. Israel needs the Lord. And Zechariah says, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, Jesus is talking, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as, as one weeps over a firstborn. It says there's going to be such weeping and anguish in Israel, in Jerusalem on that day. It's a day coming when Jesus does this, and it says all Israel will be saved. It's amazing. And then the last fall feast is the Feast of Booths or Tents. It's a week-long celebration, which begins five days later. And this is the most joyous appointed time of the year. Now, we think of Christmas, which I already talked about a little bit. We think of that at a great time. But I'd like to see some Christians start to get excited about celebrating a Feast of Booths, a Feast of Tents, realizing that Jesus is coming again. We're going to be gathered to him. He's going to forgive Israel and redeem them. And then he's going to literally dwell with us. Not just for a thousand years, but for time and eternity. It's going to be amazing. It's the fall harvest. It's called Sukkot. That's the Hebrew word. And it's also known as the Feast of Tabernacles. Because they built small tents or shelters where they lived and had their meals when they were in the wilderness. And it reminds them of how God took care of them all those years. It's amazing as they wandered in the wilderness. Well, Jesus will fulfill that because God in flesh will now dwell amongst his people. So we're going to wrap up with this. It's interesting that placed between these feasts, in fact, let's go back to that chart again, the very first one. Placed in between the feasts is Pentecost. Here it is. We got the spring feasts and we got the fall feasts and here in the, in the middle, at the end of spring, this is still spring, it's three months before the fall, the time of the Gentiles, the church age, it's Pentecost. And Pentecost not only depicts the outpouring of the Holy Spirit until the day of the Lord, but it also reminds us that for seven weeks, for seven weeks, 50 days from first fruits, there's this period from first fruits until Moses went up Mount Sinai and received the Ten Commandments. 
Exodus 19:18, it says, God came down in fire. There was smoke, there was thunderings and lightnings, there was wind, and God came down in fire. It's amazing. Three-month interval and the giving of the law. And Moses was up there with God a little too long from the people's point of view, so they made the golden calf, and they sinned against God. And when Moses came down, he told the Levites, the priest tribe, he said, if you're with me, get on my side. And they killed 3,000 people that day. 3,000 people died because of their rebellion. Well, that's not the point that I want to draw out. Because the day of Pentecost for us is the dawning of the new covenant. God is now writing his law on our hearts, not on stones anymore. It's the initiation of the church instead of the confirmation of the covenant. And all who call on the name of the Lord during this period shall be saved. Jesus spends 40 days with his disciples and he tells them to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. And then they ask the question that many people ask today. Jesus, when are you going to come back? Jesus, when are you going to establish your kingdom? Jesus, when are you going to throw off all this, all, this, all this awfulness that's around us? Is this the time you're going to do it, Jesus? That's Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. You know what Jesus' answer was? He said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that God has put in his own power, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses to the end of the earth. And you'll be in the church age. You'll be in the middle of this Gentile period. It begins with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It culminates with the second coming of Jesus Christ. And you know what happened on the day of Pentecost? Ten days later, 40 days Jesus teaches them. He tells them to wait in Jerusalem Ten days. You say, why ten days? Well, because 40 and 10 is 50. And 50 from first fruits, when Jesus rose from the dead, is Pentecost. And God decided from the foundation of the world that his son is going to die on Passover, raised on first fruits, and he's going to pour out the Holy Spirit on the church on the day of Pentecost, 50 days later. And that's exactly what happens. And rather than 3,000 people being killed, what happened on the day of Pentecost? 3,000 people were saved. You can't make this stuff up. God is amazing. I just want you to know today, you can experience both Passover and Pentecost now. And one day, all believers will experience the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tents, where God dwells with us and where we rule and reign with Christ. So I want to read this last passage from Acts, and then we're going to pray. We've identified with the unleavened bread, and we've said we want you to remove sin and pride and those things unnecessary in our life. With your help, Lord, we want to live in sincerity and truth. But after they were filled with the Holy Spirit, it's the first passage we read. They, those in the upper room, it was the apostles and some others gathered with them. After they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they went out into the street and they were speaking in languages they'd never learned. And people who 
spoke those other languages who were visiting Jerusalem for the feast. This was one of the feasts you were supposed to come to. Three of them you're supposed to come to every year. Passover, Pentecost, and booths. And they were there from all over the world and they heard him speak in their languages and they said, what does this mean? What can this be? And Peter stood up and preached. And he said a lot of things. But he said this, Acts 2, 17 through 21. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Now let me just stop for one second. This is a promise, not just to adults. It's a promise to believing children. God wants to put his spirit on all of us today. You say, Jim, are you wanting us all to become Pentecostals? No, I want you to be a biblical Christian, surrendered to the Holy Spirit who already lives inside of you and welcoming him to empower you, empower you to be a witness in the earth, whether you're at school, whether you're on the job, whether you're home, whether you're with your friends at the park. God wants you and I to be part of this last day celebration of souls being one to Jesus before he comes because he's coming soon. It's true. Thank you for listening today. If you were blessed and you want to be a part of what God is doing through Courageous Church, including ways that you can give, visit us online at CourageousChurch.com.